Hi, my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed, Bed Crime, crime Stories. Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good, Good evening. Night. Good afternoon. What's up? Good middle of the night. Good midnight. <laughs> Good morrow. <laughs> Welcome to 3 a.m. Yeah, really, exactly. Whatever whatever time you are listening, good that time of day. Um, So, yeah, that's. I guess that's it. I don't know. <laughs> like, like I said, I love that we have a uh, very great in-tune intro and then kind of get lost from there, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm going to throw things. Us. Yeah, exactly. They, you guys should be used to it by now, right? This is episode like 40-ish around the 40 time area. Oh, man. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and throw things over to Nikki and she's going to kick things off this week with our true crime headline. Hello. So this week on people.com, mm. like how professional I sound uh-huh. there, people.com on july 12th 2021 mm-hmm. it says uber driver is stabbed to death in california God. suspect seen fleeing from car is a 17 year old girl jeez yeah so it said 58 year old raquel weber was reportedly uh reportedly stabbed to death in a vehicle around 3 p.m on oh, tuesday in the middle of the effing day during the middle of the day um, it says a teenage girl is in custody on suspicion of murdering um, of murder after a San Diego area Uber driver was stabbed to death in her vehicle last week. Holy crap. Yeah, it's crazy. As the kids nowadays say, she, she, that's a thing, right? Sheesh. It is. Sheesh. It, I, and I actually know it's really bad. I don't even know if their sheesh means the same, same thing as like our sheesh means. <laughs> Like to me, that's like sheesh. Wait, that's crazy. Yeah. To them, I don't know if that's what their sheesh means. Yeah, I don't understand, especially when they're like putting it up to their sheesh. To yeah, their, I don't get it. Yeah. But that's what the kids say these days, so I'm echoing their sentiment. Sheesh. I don't get this, this is like I'm awkward. I'm gonna ask you a question. <gasps> the yes. two like fingers pointing at one another, yes. at each other. Like I heard like I, finger guns towards see, each other. I thought it was awkward, but then someone told me it meant I was shy, and I was like, what? "Well, yeah, it's like that. Like mm, I'm oh, too okay. shy to ask you, so look how cute oh, I am. Okay, whatever. I just think it's cute. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I do it, and then I'm like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Mm. But this other one I saw, and I was like, holy shit. So this is on Oxygen.com. This okay. is posted July thirteenth, twenty twenty one. Okay. Arrest warrant issued for ex-Disney star Kyle Massey after he fails to appear in court. I read that yesterday. Yeah. I read that last night. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I saw this and I was like, holy shit. Yeah. And he still looks like a little... Like he, he like looks like you took the face of Kyle Massey from That's So Raven yeah. and like pasted it on an adult man's body. It's yes, very strange. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But it says Massey is accused of sending a 13-year-old girl illicit pictures and videos, Gish. according to the court document. And I'm trying to find how old he currently He's got to be in his mid-20s. It doesn't say how old he currently is, but I'm like, it's just... I mean, he's, I mean. He's got to be in his mid-20s. I, I watched That's So Raven when I was a kid. Oh my God, so I like, love I That's So like Raven. I feel like probably. I was waiting. So <laughs> it's the future I can I see. I will say, like, I, I think I'm one oh, of those. Oh, he's only 29. But Oh, he's still. actually older than I thought he was going to be. But still, like, compared to a 13-year-old. Well, yeah. Like, hello. Yeah. 
I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I was like way too old to be watching all those Disney Channel shows, but I loved them. Oh, I fucking loved Disney Channel. I shows. loved yeah. That's So Raven. I loved um I loved the Jonas Brothers <gasps> show. I don't even care. Like zero I don't shame. I never watched that one. I liked both of them, like the original, and then I also liked Jonas LA. Um I mean, I do love the Jonas Brothers, yeah, though. Yeah, I loved Even Stevens. Yes. That was really fun. I really enjoyed Wizards of Waverly Place was, like, yes! my jam. Yes, 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 yes. The Wizards of Waverly Place, like, movie that, like, yes. wrapped up the whole series was so good. I can watch it now today and still cry at the end. I'm like, yeah. it's so touching and beautiful. Yeah, it's real, Completely real sad. And I was, like, way too old to be into it, but whatever. Okay. It was a good show. Yeah, it was. And honestly, going back and rewatching a lot of the Disney shows that I watched as a kid, I'm like, bro, I get some of these go- jokes now. Yeah. Oh, like, yes. Like, yeah, the crap that like went over your head when you were a kid. Yeah. You're just like, this was funny because everybody else was laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh. Yeah. They didn't have shows like that like when we when I was a kid, except for I would say the only show that came close to that was Boy Meets World. Yeah. Was the only show that was kind of on that same level of like decent writing, tackled some interesting issues like discuss things that kids were really going through like when sean's dad died or when sean when sean joined the cult <laughs> which was like Gee, yeah i love no, when they, sean joined, they, joined they the cult. touched on like real life yes like real shit yeah so yeah i um other than them boy meets world i can't think of any other show from like when i was growing up besides things that were sitcoms that were also skewed older like fresh prince or like yes. those type of shows but f- things that were geared towards kids boys Me- boy meets world is like the only one okay. and then when they brought back when they did girl meets world a couple years ago mm-hmm. it is such a bad show but i watched every stupid episode because i love ben savage mm-hmm. so much me too What's it? His brother. His brother did a TV show with a bunch of little kids. So Fred Savage was in. No, he was. Fred Savage was in the Wonder Years when he was a kid. Well, no, 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 no. I'm thinking he did the he did the money show though. There was a TV show that he was on that was like questions. I was thinking Ricky Gervais because Ricky Gervais had a a, the. Are you smarter than like a? Or it was something where they would ask kids like kids do kids say the darndest things. No, no, no. It was like adults, but then like if they didn't know it, like they would go to the kid. Like they would always ask the kids. Are you smarter than a fifth, fifth grader? grader? I think so. Yeah. Okay. But Ricky Gervais was the the host of that. But he was in there with the kids, and that was like the best. Yeah. He's funny. Not a not a big Ricky Gervais fan. <gasps> I'm not gonna lie. I don't find him funny. I find him no. obnoxious. Yeah. I, I don't know who that is. He's I the he him. was the one who played the same character that Steve Carell played on The Office when it was still in Britain and when it was in Britain. He's the creator he, of the original Office. Got it. So he did this one show. And it was like, I forget what it was called, but his wife had cancer Mm -hmm. and they had a dog and he wanted to like kill himself. But like literally it was the best fucking TV show. I'll have to look it up. Sounds incredibly depressing. (laughs) It is, but he's such an asshole in it that it's like, like, it's just, it's really funny. And I'm like, man, he just says everything that I feel. Mm. Yeah. He's kind of an asshole, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I find him obnoxious. I'm sorry. It's okay. But I'm. I'm sure he also doesn't give a shit that I find him not just either. He's probably like, yeah, whatever, fuck you. I figured, what, what show? What show did he do? The Emmys? Golden Globe. He does a lot of the award shows. Yes. But he did one, the last one he did, and I was like, I don't think they're going to ask him back. Well, and I will tell you, every single time he hosts one of those things, I say the exact same thing, like, they're never going to ask Ricky Gervais back, and they always do. Because when he's on, they get ratings, because it's like, what the hell is he actually going to say? He's so rude to people, mm-hmm. and I'm like, mm-hmm. <gasps> 
my whole thing is like i don't mind you taking the piss out of these celebrities because like honestly like whatever but sometimes he gets he gets cruel and that's when that's why i don't like him we can there's a big difference between like picking on the obvious and making a joke on someone's behalf and then like actually being cruel and mean about somebody so it's time for charlie to tell us a bedtime story it's time for the big crime story or of the week. a morning story <laughs> exactly or a wake up and go to work story listen to the sun you drive exactly um so yeah so um uh, i'm gonna start first with my sources and then i'm gonna jump right into the story and let you know what story i'm telling tonight so i have three primary sources for tonight the first was from vox the second was from PBS, and the third is, of course, a Wikipedia. So, Wikipedia. Wikipedia, woo! Um, so, a couple weeks ago, I was racking my brain trying to come up with the next story to tell, and I couldn't think of what I wanted to do. So, I asked my boyfriend, who hates true crime and doesn't even listen to our podcast, like, he's just not, it's not his jam. So, I was like, so if you had to listen to any true crime story, what is the true crime story that you would want to hear? So, he he's like, all right, let me think about it. I'll let you know, whatever. So, the next day, he said that he wants to find out what actually happened at Waco um, and the siege oh. of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. So, it kind of was perfect timing because i've been wanting to branch out from our typical like just straightforward murdery stories that yeah. we've been doing um and this is definitely something that really allows me to kind of dip my toe in those waters of like okay let's let's try this out and see how it goes so i'm going to be telling the story of waco and the siege on the compound of the branch davidians so we're going to kind of rewind all the way back in time and even further back than when the events of our story really take place in the early 90s, all the way back to 1930. Wow. Um, and that was the year that a Hungarian immigrant by the name of Victor Hotef, um, or Hutef, I'm not 100% sure, I'm not Hungarian, began what is now known as the Branch Davidians. So the Branch Davidian, or just Davidians, began as Shepherd's Rod. That was the original name of the religion that was created by Hotef. And it was an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Christian religion. So now, Seventh-day Adventists, in, in and of itself, is also an offshoot of the Protestant Christian denomination. So where the Protestants and most Western Christian theologies um, observe the Holy Day or the Sabbath Day on Sunday, the Seventh-day Adventists practice um, their Sabbath on Saturday or the Seventh Day, eh, eh, hence the name. So, um, obviously, there's other, like, fundamental beliefs that are different between the Seventh-day Adventists and other Christian theologies, but we're not going to get into, like, a theologic uh, history lesson here. Um, so <clears throat> Victor Hotef believed that the Messiah prophesied in the Bible was in fact not Jesus Christ, but that the true Messiah had yet to come to earth. He stated that he and his true followers would bring about the true Messiah and the future Davidic kingdom during the impending apocalypse. Um, Hotef purchased the compound in Waco, Texas, and named it Mount Carmel, in homage of the mountain in the Bible. And he believed that the new Mount Carmel compound would be the center of the new kingdom of David after the apocalypse. 
So like any good offshoot of a religion, we have to create a new theology and usually usually centers around the fact of like, Jesus wasn't the only one, somebody else is coming soon, and I'm the only one who can figure out who he is. So, um, so, but yeah, like the Mount Carmel or the Branch Davidian compound has actually been, was actually established back in the 30s, which I find incredibly interesting. I'm just so interested in all these different religions that yeah. just pop up. And crazy I'm like, stuff. All these little branch offs and offshoots and... Yeah. It's crazy. Can I start my own? Yeah. Well, I mean, hmm... <laughs> I was going to pass a comment, but I don't want to piss people off. Um, so Hotef dies in 1955. And after he passes, one of his followers named Benjamin Roden claims that he begins to hear the messages from God, telling him to continue Hotef's work. Roden's claims and the prophecy made by Hotef's widow, where she stated that the world is going to end in 1959. So these two separate claims, Roden's and Florence Hotef's, separate the group. So the group kind of divides at this point. You have those who followed Florence and those who followed Benjamin Rodin. Well, 1959 comes, 1959 goes, the world's still spinning. So Florence Hotef leaves the Davidian group, which leaves Rodin's followers by now known as the Branch Davidians to take over the Mount Carmel Center in Waco. So in 1981, um, a gentleman named Vernon Howell joins the Branch Davidian community. In the years leading up to his arrival, Vernon Howell sought acceptance in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. His mother was a member, and he was looking to find his way. Um, He eventually, though, was expelled from the faith following claims that he was a bad influence on the younger members. It did not go into detail about exactly what he did or why he was considered a bad influence, but alas, out with Vernon Howell. So after he left the Seventh-day Adventist, he travels to Los Angeles with the hope of becoming a rock star. Uh, But he winds up, of course, in Waco in 1981. You know, he had to take his chance in L.A., I guess. By 1983, Howell begins to climb. um, He begins to claim that he is also a prophet now and that he can also hear the word of God. And it was speculated that at this time he was also having an affair with Benjamin Roden's now widow. So Ben Roden has passed away and now Vernon Howell is stupin his ex his his widow. Lois. And Lois at this point is acting as the de facto leader after Benjamin Roden dies. Because the two of them are having this affair or supposedly having this affair, Lois allows Vernon Howell to start to preach his own message. And he calls his message the serpent's root. The serpent's root. Which caused a bit of controversy within the group because Lois's son, who she had with Benjamin, whose name is George Roden, was kind of thought that he was going to be the intended new leader now that Benjamin was dead. And he was kind of pissed off because all of a sudden here comes Vernon Howell and now he's ascending to the top past him, beyond him. So Howell claims that God instructed him to marry this other follower named Rachel Jones. And this, but because of this, because he marries Rachel Jones, he kind of, I guess, leaves Lois alone. And it seems to kind of bring about this time of peace within the Davidian community. Until a fire breaks out on the compound and um, causes over $500,000 worth of damage to the administration buildings at the property. So George Roden claims that Vernon Howell is to blame, that he's the one who started the fire. Howell claims that the fire was a judgment of God. Hmm. 
George Ronan forced Howell and his group of devotees off the compound at gunpoint. So he's expelled from the compound. So Vernon Howell and his group of, of peeps, they settle in a, in Palestine, Texas, which is about 90 miles from Waco, where they lived in tents and buses for two years. Now, when I saw the thing that it was Palestine, Texas, because of course, like I'm, I'm like perusing the article to get the details. And I say that they were living in Palestine. I was like, wow, he like, he really took this profit thing to heart. <laughs> so I was like, but no, Palestine, Texas. <laughs> I guess he's like, well, if Mount Carmel in Texas is the new Mount Carmel, I guess this is the new Palestine. Who knows? I guess he's just, you know, we took the Holy Land and just threw it in. I mean, it's kind of the desert out there, too, I guess. I don't know. So Palestine, Texas is about 90 miles away from Waco. So they live out there in basically squalor for the next two years. So in those two years, he and his group begin to start to travel and recruit to his group. So they go to California. They actually go overseas to the UK, to Australia, to Israel. And when he's in Israel, he claims to have a vision that he was the modern day Cyrus. So Cyrus, who was Cyrus the Great, was the first Persian emperor. So that kind of gives you an idea of like how he saw himself. He's like, yeah, no, I'm Cyrus. That's cool. Um, yes, yes, you are. So after Lois Roden dies in 1986, the exiled Davidians with Howell worry that they're not going to now be able to go back and rejoin the group. Because now that Lois is gone, who was kind of on their side, we know now that George is going to take over. So Howell and his group are like, we're not going to be able to get back on to the compound. But Howell, since he went on all of these recruitment trips, he now has the loyalty of the majority of the Branch Davidians. So he has numbers on his side. He has all these people to back him up. So in 1987, um, he finds out, Vernon Howell finds out, that in 1987, George Roden exhumed at least one body that was buried at the community cemetery on the property in Waco. Roden claims that he was simply moving the burial site from one place to another, but Howell claims that Roden was attempting to resurrect the dead. So Howell uses this as an opportunity to file charges against Roden for illegally exhuming a corpse. But he was told by the authorities that he would need to provide some sort of proof that this happened. Like, you just hearing that this happened is not enough for us to go and raid this compound, right? Howell returns to the Mount Carmel Center with seven armed followers, allegedly attempting to get a photo to prove Roden's guilt. So Howell and his group were seen. They were trying to like sneak on in the middle of the night. They were seen and a gunfight breaks out. By the time the sheriff arrives, Roden had already suffered a minor gunshot wound. And as a result of this, Howell and his followers were charged with attempted murder but at the trial, Howell explained that he went to the Mount Carmel Center to uncover this evidence of the criminal activity by Rodin. Um, Howell's followers were acquitted, and his case resulted in a mistrial. So all of them were able to go free after shooting this dude. In 1989, Rodin murders this guy named Wayman Dale Adair, because Adair now all of a sudden starts to say that he's the true messiah. So now he's like, saying, it's me, I'm the second, I'm actually the Messiah, I'm the one you've been looking for, whatever. But it's me. It's me. It's me. I'm the one who does it. Um, so Rodin, um, so he kills him, basically. He's like, no, you're not, boom. So Rodin was brought to trial and found to be criminally insane, hmm, shocker, and was confined to a psychiatric hospital in Big Spring, Texas. Rodin owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center. So Howell and his followers raise the money, reclaim the property, and now the property of Mount Carmel is under the possession 
of Vernon Howell. So interesting. When they actually reclaim the property, they discover that tenants who had rented space from Ronan or Rodin had left behind a meth lab. So that's just in, like just a fun, interesting factoid, um, which Howell was able to report to local police department and had it removed. Holy yeah, so just a fun little interesting uh, this tidbit. Breaking there. bad, yeah, right for real, for real. So in May of 1990, after officially reclaiming his place as the leader of the Branch Davidians and the compound at Mount Carmel in Waco, Vernon Howell legally changes his name to the name that we all know is synonymous with the Branch Davidians is. Um, his name is now David Koresh. So Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great. Remember I said that when he was in Israel, he thought he was the second coming of Cyrus. So he named himself David Koresh, Koresh meaning Cyrus. And David signifies the lineage of King David. So again, like we said, was like the second coming of the, the kingdom of David. So he is now David Koresh. He thinks very nicely of himself. He really does. He thinks he's just the best. So cool. So, Koresh was alleged to have been involved in multiple incidents of both physical and sexual abuse of children. So, real stand-up guy. His teachings of the House of David lead to, quote-unquote, marriages with both married and single women within the Branch Davidians. This doctrine was based on the supposed directive, right from God, that involved the births of 24 children by chosen women in the community. So... David Koresh has to father these 24 children who are going to serve as the ruling elders after the return of Christ. Wait, so he's going to have sex with 24 different women? Correct. To give birth to 24 different children who will serve as the ruling elders after the return of Christ. Was he successful? Um, no, I don't. I don't know if I mentioned how many kids he had. He had kids, but not 24. I was like, holy fuck. He didn't win. Yes, if you if you don't mind, Jovi, you can Google imagine, how many kids he had. Imagine having that many kids. Or imagine fucking finding out that you're, you're, that's your father. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. So one of the women that was chosen to go through this and be one of the women he was going to impregnate included at least one underage girl named Michelle Jones. Go ahead. 16. 16. So I was close. He was close. He was more than halfway there. Whoa, whoa. He was living on a prayer. (laughs) And it's funny (laughs) because... Live literally. (laughs) Oh, wow. Wow. Lame. Um, His Wikipedia, under children, it names three, and they're like, and 13 others. (laughs) (laughs) So these are the three we know, and then there was a whole bunch of other kids running around. I'm going to be honest. If I found that out about my dad, I'd be like... All right, I'm going to change my name. Well, a slight spoiler alert. I don't know how many of those kids are still living. <gasps> so just to give you a little peek into how this story is oh, going to end. See, I don't know anything about the story. Yeah. So just a little peek into how this is going to end. Oh, so that's fucked up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like I said, the women that were chosen through this doctrine included at least one underage girl. Her name was Michelle Jones. Fact here, Michelle Jones is the younger sister of Koresh's legal wife, Rachel Jones. Um, A six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protective Services in 1992 did not turn up any viable evidence, likely because the Branch Davidians concealed the marriage, quote-unquote, of Koresh to Michelle by assigning her a surrogate husband, David Thibodeau, for the sake of public appearance. 
So they covered up the abuse by marrying her off to this other guy, David Thibodeau. So, yeah. <clears throat> so as far as reports of, sec- of physical abuse, there is one widely reported incident where ex-members claim that Koresh became irritated with the cries of his son, Cyrus, and spanked the child so severely for several minutes on three consecutive visits to the child's bedroom. In a second report, a man involved in a custody battle visited the Mount Carmel Center and claimed to have been have seen the beating of a young boy with a stick. So, again, real cool dude. In addition to the allegations of sexual and physical abuse, Koresh and his followers were also suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons. Now, this accusation is truly what causes all of the events of the Waco siege to occur. So in May 1992, Chief Deputy Daniel Weyenberg of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department called the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, or the ATF, to notify them that a report had been made by a local UPS driver. So this guy, who was a UPS driver, said that he went to go deliver a package to the compound, and the package broke open, I guess he dropped it, whatever, and it revealed firearms, grenade casings, and black powder. So he went, reported it to his manager the manager file filed this information with the local sheriff's department crazy right so on june 9th of the same year 1992 the atf opened a formal investigation and a week later it was classified as sensitive quote thereby calling for a high degree of oversight unquote on july 30th atf agents david aguilera no relation to Christina, oh, or so I. That's where my brain went. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, he is not a genie in a bottle, for what I could find, but we really don't know. Um, so David Aguilera and Skinner, whose first name I could not find in all of my research, so it's David Aguilera and Skinner. I'm guessing is his last name. Visited the gun dealer of the Branch Davidians, whose name is Henry McMahon. There's a lot of names, and I do apologize. It's hard to keep them all straight, but. Uh, the gun dealer of the Branch Davidians, whose name is Henry McMahon. Um, So when Aguilera and Skinner talk to them, McMahon's like, I'm going to get you directly in touch with David Koresh. Like, kind of like, I don't really want to be involved in this. So Koresh offers to let the ATF come onto the property and inspect the compound, inspect all the weapons, too, and look at all the paperwork to show that, you know, we we purchased these all and acquired these all legally. Um, And he even asked to speak directly with Aguilera, but Aguilera declined. So that's interesting. The ATF began surveillance from a house across the road from the entrance of the compound several months before the siege. Their cover was not really like the best, though. So they were supposedly college students renting the space, but they were clearly like well into their 30s. They all had brand new cars and they were not registered at any of the local schools. And like they didn't keep a schedule that you're like, "Mm, bet that dude's going to class. Like it's just like they were like these 30 something year old dudes all living in a house with brand new Cadillacs. Like, it's like, like, bro, like, you need, like, a beat-up yeah. 19, like, what, 80 Toyota 82, Corolla? Correct. Like, yes, exactly. And, like, come and go around, like, normal, like, class times. Get your young dudes on the scene. I don't know. Do it right. Not, not, not the smartest. So they basically cast these guys, like, they cast high school movies where they cast... Yeah, correct. Yeah, basically. It was, like, legit 21 Jump Street. (laughs) There's, like, narcs living across the street, like, hi, fellow kids, right? Like that meme. (laughs) So the ATF obtained a search warrant 
Did I say ATF? I think I said ATF. I'm going to say it again. The ATF observe, um, nope, obtained a search warrant on sub- susp- well, No, it's fine. No, it's whatever. <laughs> so the ATF obtained a search warrant on suspicion that the Davidians were modifying guns to be able to fire them automatically, which is illegal. So automatic weapons are illegal. So the a former branch Davidian claimed that Koresh had a M16 lower receiver part combining an M16 trigger component with a modified AR-15 lower receiver is, according to ATF regulations, constructive possession. Meaning, meaning, you are constructing this weapon and now you possess an illegal firearm. Yeah. So you take all of these broken parts, put it together, and now you have an illegal firearm, which is... something like crazy correct which is illegal and regulated in the firearm owners protection act of 1986 so the atf used an affidavit filed by david aguilera to obtain the warrant that led to the waco siege and the official filing date of this affidavit was february 25th 1993 i am now going to go into the actual events of the siege the siege lasted for 51 days yes ma'am how long did they surveil for um almost a full year because they start they started the summer of 1992 and the um affidavit was signed at the end of february 1993 so almost a full year so yeah so the siege is 51 days long now i'm not going to sit here and tell you what happened on every single day of the siege we would be here all day I do want to highlight the days where something important happened through the siege. So we are going to begin on the first day of the siege, Sunday, February 28th, 1993. At about 9.30 a.m., agents of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, attempt to execute arrest and search warrants against David Koresh and the Branch Davidian compound. Gunfire breaks out. Four ATF agents are killed (gasps) and 16 are wounded. Oh. Oh. Nikki, it gets so much worse. I've never heard this <laughs> I know, story. it gets so much worse. Um, an undetermined number of Davidians are killed and injured. Within a few hours, the FBI becomes the lead agency for resolving the standoff. By the afternoon, advanced units of the FBI's hostage rescue team, or the HRT, arrive. Telephone conversations start to begin between Koresh, Steve Snyder, and Wayne Martin on one side, and the ATF's Jim Cavanaugh and the Waco Police Lieutenant Larry Lynch on the other side. So David Koresh, Steve Schneider, and Wayne Martin are inside, and then these are the gentlemen who are outside trying to negotiate. Koresh discloses that he has been wounded in the hip and in his left wrist. Koresh is allowed to broadcast his religious teachings on Dallas Radio KRLD and does a CNN telephone interview. Michael Schroeder, a Branch Davidian, is killed while he tries to return to the main building. So when he's on the phone with the agents, he basically says, I'll surrender if you let me preach to the world. So that's why they were allowing him to broadcast his religious teachings on the radio. So that is the events of just day one of 51. (laughs) On Monday, March 1st, negotiations continue. Over the course of the day, 10 children are sent out of the compound. By 5 p.m., the FBI takes control with a fully functioning command post. FBI agents in armored vehicles deploy to the compound's perimeter. Koresh gets incredibly agitated when these armored vehicles start to, like, 
come in and move closer to the building. Hmm. Is this in like a neighborhood also? No, like it's like out on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Oh, okay. Because when you said there was a house across the street, I just yeah, it's like, like on a like a big old country road. Oh, uh, okay. <clears throat> so okay. that's yeah. that's fine then. Yeah, I was okay. Like, I was like, holy shit! Imagine yeah. if this happened in the neighborhood for real. So Koresh becomes extremely agitated when the armor vehicles start to get closer and closer to the house itself. And then they actually cut his phone line. And the only way, the only contact he has now, so his phone line is cut except for outgoing calls directly to the negotiators. So they reroute everything directly to oh, the negotiators. Okay. I, was like, yeah. I was like, how the fuck did they do that? Mm-hmm. So at least twice, Koresh says suicide is not being contemplated. Now, this is important to note because you have to remember that when this happens in 1993, it's only 15 years after Jonestown. So it's only 15 years after the Jonestown massacre in Guyana, right? In Jonestown. So the FBI felt... hmm? In Jonestown, they all... all, They They killed themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... The FBI felt that mass suicide is like a very real threat, right? So you have this compound of people who are all following this person. There's a real threat that another Jonestown, on a smaller scale, but another Jonestown could occur. Now, just FYI, just a little sidebar, personal note, the People's Temple and Jonestown is like my absolute favorite story ever. It's the thing that I can talk about for 45 minutes straight without having to look up a fact. It's just a thing that I know. I love it so much. I will do it one day, but I want to do it justice because it's like my jam. I'm currently reading a book called The Journey to Jonestown, and it's all about Jim Jones himself and like how he grew up and why he became who he became. So when I'm done with that, I'll write the Jonestown story. I'm so excited. I love it. Okay. Anyway. So because you're only 15 years after, they were really afraid that this is what was going to happen. So Tuesday, March 2nd, 1993, Into the morning, the negotiations continue, and Koresh makes a one-hour audio tape of his religious teachings, adding a preamble promising that he will surrender upon the national broadcast of the tape. By 1.30 that afternoon, the tape is broadcast over the Christian Broadcasting Network, or CBN, um, and President Bill Clinton agrees to deploy military vehicles for safety purposes. Wednesday, March 3rd, Koresh does not surrender as promised. Who could have seen that coming? Me. Me. Even not know even if I didn't know it was a 51 day siege, I still could have called that. Um, so Koresh does not surrender his promise after the broadcast of his sermon, but he states that it is now because he is, quote, dealing with his father and not with, quote, your bureaucratic system of government. So Koresh has derailed, is what we're saying here. Okay. Friday, March 5th, nine-year-old Heather Jones leaves the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket on which her mother writes, saying that once all the children are out, the adults will die. Yeah. Koresh and his top aide, Steve Schneider, deny that they are con- contemplating suicide. So, like, what is it? Is it, Are the adults going to die? Are they not going to die? Like, what's what's the answer to the question here? So, the FBI seeks the advice of experts and Davidians, um, or seeks the advice of experts and Davidians that have left the compound or are no longer associated with the Davidians on the likelihood of mass suicide. And they receive, quote, inconsistent information. So, 50-50, I guess. The FBI concludes that the Davidians have at least a one-year supply of food, including an abundant um, amount of military rations, or MREs, and Koresh continues to preach and threaten violence, which, I mean, we would say is probably direct uh, competition. MREs are the the things that they have, the little bags, right? Mm -hmm. Those are horrible. They do not taste good at all. Yeah, MREs, meals ready to eat. Yeah, no. 
And I mean, if they didn't get rid of the meth lab, they would have. <laughs> they would also have there. meth, which All will keep which will keep them up for days and days and days. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, on Monday, March 8th, a videotape of the children in the compound is sent out by the Davidians. The negotiator's log shows that when the tape is reviewed, there is concern that if the tape is released to the media, Koresh would gain sympathy. Yes, ma'am. How are, how are they sending this stuff out? Are they just like, they're recording it and like kicking it out the door? Or, or they're like, sending it out with somebody. Oh, okay. Like, right. here you go. Take this. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I was like, I was like, yeah. this is the nineties. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not like I could just send it from phone to phone. <laughs> exactly. Or like put it on a, oh, maybe they put it on like an RC car and and like <laughs> oh drove it God. out and drove it back in. That's what I would do because I'm a shithead. Um, on, t- <laughs> on Tuesday, March 9th, at 2.15 in the morning, the electricity to the compound is cut off. Oh, bullshit. Koresh says he will not talk further until power is restored. So they went right ahead and turned it right back on again. Schneider expressed... I know. They, they're... Um, the negotiations were kind of weak i'm not gonna be like this is you're a horrible negotiator i know for real they're like okay fine here's your electric well i was just thinking i was like fuck no air (laughs) yeah in texas yeah well it's march so it's probably cool yeah but like yeah but he just basically stomped his foot and threw a fit and they're like oh okay here's turn back on again i've only been in here like a month yeah so schneider expert not even it's like two weeks at this two point weeks, but yeah. still two weeks is a long time yeah so um schneider his like right hand bro at this point he expresses outrage over the movement of the armored vehicles around the compound because now these armored vehicles are still like inching closer and closer yeah, so hrt members see weapons in the windows and firing ports being cut into plywood placed on the windows so the davidians are now putting like gun turrets in the windows facing the police um the electricity is cut off temporarily the next day and then again for good on march 12th good so friday march 19th um in a purported attempt to address some of the davidians concerns the fbi delivers to the compound legal documents letters from koresh's attorneys and um other items koresh says he is ready to come out and face the music two davidians brad branch and kevin whitecliffe come out of the compound over the next two days seven davidians exit the compound we are now at march uh 21st sunday march 21st in the evening (laughs) sorry i giggle because this is ridiculous in the evening the fbi begins to play loud music including tibetan chants over the loudspeaker system at 11 35 koresh says because of the loud music now nobody's coming out um a short while later the loudspeaker malfunctions and the night ends quietly no more tibetan chance tuesday march 23rd at 10 p.m the fbi shines floodlights at the compound and plays over the loudspeaker tapes of previous negotiations and messages from those who had exited the compound like pleading with them to surrender sunday march 28th at 2 26 p.m koresh says that he has no intention to die and he was waiting for a word from god another videotape is sent out from the compound showing 19 children still in the house looking tired but healthy at least yay um the first two weeks of april are fairly uneventful not a lot of stuff is going on as far as negotiations not a lot of progress um but in those two weeks the davidians celebrate passover on monday april 5th and the following sunday the 11th is easter sunday so we are now um close to midway through april so we're getting close to the end so monday april 12th 
Uh, FBI officials present a plan to employ tear gas at the compound to U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno for approval. At first, she asks repeatedly, why now, why not wait? But then becomes convinced some action obviously is needed. So the tear gas plan is presented, quote, not as an all-out assault, but as a tactic whereby gas will be inserted in stages, initially into only one small area of the compound. So the goal that they were trying to accomplish here is started at one end and kind of push everybody out exactly so at first janet reno denies the proposal to use tear gas but she finally approves it but only on a cursory basis saying i'm going to leave the final decision to those on the ground at waco i'm not there i'm not going to make the final decision yes or no but they need to see that it's appropriate before i say before they push it through all i'm imagining is i just remember that one article that you did where the, the cops got in trouble because they played Baby Shark. And like, I mean, I'm like, yeah. imagine if Baby Shark... How far shark, we've come. <laughs> imagine if Baby Shark was a thing back then, you know? Like, I think that would drive me absolutely insane. Bonkers. Yeah, completely bonkers. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Reno discusses... Sorry, <laughs> I know. Such a dark thing, and then I'm like, here's Baby Shark. Yeah. Uh, Reno discusses the tear gas plan with President Clinton, who agrees with her decision but expresses concern for the safety specifically of the children who are still within the compound. Mm -hmm. Um, Armored vehicles clear Koresh's Chevy Camaro and other vehicles away from the front of the compound. Uh, And it looks as though because they're moving these vehicles away, something is going to happen, right? We're about to... Chevy Camaro? Yeah, well, I mean... Being a cult leader pays well. So Davidians hold children up in the windows and in one window hold a sign saying, Flames Await. So here we are, Monday, April 19th, day 51, the final day of the Waco siege. At 5.59 a.m., the Davidians are notified of an imminent tear gas assault. A message is read over the loudspeaker advising the Davidians that they are under arrest and should come out. At 6.02 a.m., two FBI combat engineering vehicles, or CEVs, begin inserting gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to, like, a boom. So, like, on a, like, a big yeah. stick. Right. <laughs> big old, like, a big fucking stick. Um, at 6.04 a.m., Davidians start shooting, and the FBI begin deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret rounds through the windows. I looked up what this wait, stuff means. Wait. So Bradley vehicles are um, like assault vehicles and ferret rounds are used to penetrate walls, windows and other barriers and release tear gas. So oh, they're like shit. big canister um, rounds that push through barriers and then will release gas. Um, at 6.31, the HRT reports that the entire building is being gassed. So the entire attack is now fully underway. At 7.30 a.m., a CEV breaches the front side of the building on the first floor as it injects gas. And at 7.58 a.m., gas is inserted into the second floor of the back right corner of the building. The FBI calls for more gas from outside of Waco. And at 9.20 a.m., I know, at 9.20, I know, at 9.20 a.m., 48 more ferret rounds arrive from Houston. At 9.30 a.m., with the supply of ferret rounds dwindling, one CEV is having mechanical troubles and high winds are blowing the gas away. So this plan is like starting to turn to shit. Another CEV begins enlarging the opening in the middle front of the building. From and, and the intention here, supposedly, is so that way it allows the Davidians a place to escape from. The third CRV, uh, there's another CRV that has a, or CEV, I'm sorry, not CRV, that's a 
actual vehicle. A CEV with a boom doesn't have a gas delivery system that breaches the rear side of the building to create openings near the gymnasium. Again, are they actually creating openings for people to escape or are they just like pounding on the building? You know, you, you yeah. don't really know what's like the actual plan here. Um, at 11.40 a.m., the last of the ferret rounds are delivered, and at 11.45 a.m., a wall on the right rear side of the building collapses. 12.07 p.m., the Davidians start, quote, simultaneous fires at three or more different locations within the compound. An HRT observer reports seeing a male starting a fire in the front of the building. At 12.12 p.m., calls out to Koresh are made, asking him to lead the Davidians out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the fiery compound, and they are immediately arrested. At 12.25 p.m., the FBI hears systematic gunfire coming from the compound, leading to the impression that the Davidians are either killing themselves or one another. At 12.41, firefighting efforts begin. HRT agents enter tunnels to search for survivors, especially the children. But in all, 76 people died. 76 people. Wait, you just said tunnels. Yeah, they had like under, they tunneled underground to get into the compound. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean it was this was legit. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition was found in quote the bunker, which was a storage room that they had on site at the compound. The Texas Rangers arson investigator report assumes that as many uh, that many of the occupants were either denied escape from the inside of the compound or refused to leave until escape was no longer an option. So they held on for so long and then they weren't able to escape. The report also mentions that the structural debris from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have blocked possible escape routes through the tunnel system. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's uh, Department of Fire Protection Engineering did conclude that the residents had sufficient time to escape the fire if they chose to do so. Autopsies of the dead revealed that some women and children found beneath a falling concrete wall of the storage room died of skull injuries. Um, autopsy photographs of other children locked in what are described to be spasmic death poses, which that paints a picture, are consistent with cyanide poisoning. But interesting fact, cyanide poisoning is a, is a potential result that is produced by burning tear gas. So if tear gas is burnt, it creates cyanide. So did they give cyanide pills to the kids or did it happen because they set the fires? You know, fucking crazy. Autopsy reports, um, autopsy records also indicate that at least 20 Branch Davidians were shot, including Koresh, as well as five children under the age of 14. A three-year-old named Dayland Ghent was stabbed in the chest right thank you awful the medical examiner who performed the autopsies believe that these deaths were mercy killings by the branch davidians trapped in the fire with no escape the expert retained by the u.s office of special counsel concluded that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction quote either by overt suicide consensual execution so suicide by proxy or less likely forced execution so more than likely it was self-motivated whether it's suicide directly or having somebody else kill you but least likely they were killed without their knowledge basically uh branch davidian survivor david thibodeau mentioned him before 
right? He was the proxy uh, husband of the child bride of David Koresh. So David Thibodeau wrote his account of life in the group and of the siege in a book called A Place Called Waco, published in 1999. His book served in part as the basis for the 2018 Paramount Network six-part miniseries called Waco, which was fucking awesome. And it starred Michael Shannon, who I love, as FBI negotiator Gary Nosner, and Taylor fucking Kitsch as David Koresh. And he was, say it with me, amazing. It premiered on January 24th, 2018. Highly recommend. If you have access to the Paramount Network, watch that six-part miniseries. It's phenomenal. Um, Nothing remains of the building today other than the concrete foundation um, that's left behind. The entire site was bulldozed two weeks after the end of the siege. And there is now a small chapel that stands on the site, but it was built years after the events of the siege on Waco. That's like a big ass fucking building. That's not what I like. I think I just envisioned like a church. Mm. I wasn't like envisioning like. It's basically just a mansion on a um, yeah, on a farm, kind yeah. of. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah, crazy. So that is the story that. of the siege on Waco. Holy shit! Crazy. That is like major early '90s American history. Crazy, crazy, craziness. And like, there's a lot of conversation still happening with Waco, and even happening directly after Waco of like government overreach. Why were they there in the first place? Why did it go down the way it went down? Blah blah blah. Like, what mistakes were made? And I will say, like personally i think mistakes were made on both sides oh yeah like i understand to a certain extent the the need to get onto the compound to see exactly what was going on between the assault uh allegations against david koresh and of course the apparent hoarding of illegal firearms that that would make me nervous like what are you planning you know but the, you know that? This, the siege and the way it went down. Oh, why do you need all that? The siege and the way that it went down was just, it was extreme. It was extreme measures for a uh, just very interesting situation. And like I said, 76 people died, including tiny children. That's and just absolutely fucking crazy. And I mean, I think a lot of the, and this is just my own personal opinion, and I, I don't know if other people share this as well, but the fact that on the very first day those ATF agents died, I feel like a lot of this was really just like, you killed our men, so we're just going to keep fucking with you until you come out of this building. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. It's just crazy. Waco is a crazy story. And uh, yeah, it is a interesting part of uh, our history. So, But like I said, highly recommend watching the Waco miniseries. When I'm I, going to. It's really good. Yeah. And like I'm one of those people where I, I obviously love true crime content but i tend to not like dramatizations of real stories Mm -hmm. so like when a movie is made about a story that i'm interested in i tend to not like it because it's i want to i want to see interviews i want to see the place i want to see the people like i want to be part of it type of a thing like immerse myself but waco was so well done and it because it's such a long mini series, they go into so much detail about what happened. Yeah. So I highly recommend. It's really great. And Michael Shannon is like one of my faves. Is it Paramount? It should be on the Paramount Network. Okay. Yeah, because it was a release of theirs back in 2018. So, but we can probably Ooh. Google to see where else it is um, available to watch. Sweet. But yeah, so that's our bed crime story this week, guys. Good job. Thanks. It was a lot of information. I've never, I've never heard. Yeah. I mean, I've heard Waco, but I've just never... Known the details. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've never, like, looked into what happened there. Because I'm also, yeah. like, I'm not I'm not huge into cults. I am 
huge into cults. Uh, yeah, I was like, I was like, damn, cults is my jam. Mm-hmm. Somebody should do Haley's comment. So the uh, okay, so there is an HBO documentary right now about that particular cult. And it. did you watch it? Mm-hmm. It is so fucking good, and I love that documentary so much because. They actually make you somewhat sympathetic towards the people in the cult. And I'm sorry, can you repeat it again? Um, for so Haley's comment was what they wound up because it was also a mass suicide cult. Oh, okay. Um, but they were called the. Oh, I forget. Fuck. Heaven's Gate. That's Heaven's it. Gate. So Heaven's Gate was the, actually the name of the group who wound up. It was an, like I said, another suicide cult, and the the documentary on HBO is incredibly interesting and it does it paints this like very empathetic look at the people who are part of heaven's gate and like you by the time you're done with the documentary you feel bad for them and it's just incredibly interesting and it was a very interesting spin on like typical cult content but i'm obsessed with a um podcast that i actually found because of Karen with my favorite murder. Yeah. Um, called Cults. Just <laughs> I mean, it's appropriately named. But they just go over all different types of of cults. And it's you don't realize how many cults there actually have been and actually are until you start looking to see how many freaking episodes there are of this show. And uh they recently did like a four part series on Nexium, which that's another one that completely is crazy and um Scientology. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say that, but yeah. I didn't want to call it out. I know. I know. I know. It's crazy. Well, it's okay. They're not allowed to listen to us anyway. Um. So, but yeah. So I just I find cults absolutely fascinating, and like I said, the People's Temple with with Jonestown that is just my number one. That's like it's like an interest of mine, which I know sounds so fucked up and weird, but you know, you guys are listening to us. You know what I'm talking about. Um. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's just very interesting to me. I think I just I'm so interested in the psychology of cults. <gasps> yes. Like yes, what yes, drives? Yes. First of all, like what type of narcissistic behavior drives a person to be a cult leader? and what type of personality does it take to be a person who falls Follow, in line yeah. it's just so interesting to me like the whole psychosis behind it is crazy a follower and somebody who has to do things to feel accepted well yeah it's usually people who are just at a very weak point in their lives mm-hmm. and they they feel neglected they feel like they're not they want to be part of something they want to change the one thing that you hear all the time is i wanted to change the world like nexium you hear that a lot you hear that a lot with scientologists i That's thought we were changing the world dogs yeah, dude. Yeah, seriously. Donate to something important. Yes. Do your research on a charity that actually most of the money goes to the actual charity and then donate your money. So yeah. that's my way to change the world. That and by doing these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Learn about murderers, guys, and then run away. <laughs> well, no, I, like literally I was talking to my, um, my ex-roommate. I was talking to him and... Uh, he was talking about how his girlfriend's like really into true crime and mm-hmm. I was like I was like yeah I like it because it, it kind of gives me signs to look out for and he busted out laughing and he goes that's exactly what she said it's true it's and I true was like I was like I just pick up on things and I'm like like wow you're creepy yeah mm-hmm. yeah I don't know 
it is yeah, it's it's a lifestyle choice that is for sure but um yeah so that is tonight's episode of bad crime stories guys good we thank job, you all so much job. for listening as always we think you're all real freaking awesome and groovy and we love you all so please find us on social media instagram twitter and tiktok at bed crime stories um go ahead and send us an email we love our emails for story suggestions we've had a couple so far there's another one that is on my list that i'm going to do soon i promise um and i i find it very interesting but i haven't had the time to really sit down and research it yet but i'm excited to do it go ahead and send us your story ideas we'd love to hear from you guys and what you're interested in listening to rate review subscribe um like us on anchor someone recently liked yes, us on anchor and i was like liked what? us on anchor which is cool that's where we obviously publish our um podcast through so that was fun right to the source um but yeah like i said like subscribe leave a review positive reviews help us those five star uh ratings help us to get out to more people so we appreciate that Tell a friend, tell a buddy. And uh, thank you guys all for listening. Have a great week. We love you all. Please be kind to one another. And until we see you next time, sweet dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.